0: She's Julie Roxanne,
1: and he's Alistair. And, and this, this is, is far out—a
0: Out. podcast about stepping off the beaten path and learning to live from our center. Yes, right now we're not married, and when you listen to us, we will be married. <laughs> I am still trying to come to terms with with those two opposites. Me too. In the mornings when I'm in a lot of pain, there's an ibuprofen and a strong cup of coffee. That gets me through almost anything. Saw me come in, and I'll never forget the look on his face. It was like I was the Walking Dead. He, you know, it was just that—that look. It's just like you're done.
1: Oh yeah, yeah. Like
0: he couldn't hide it on his face. (laughs) It was just like, oh God, you, there's something wrong with you, man. Your mental thinking on this was—you're like, yeah, I'm always in trekking shape. I know. Ridiculous.
1: (laughs) So guys, Alistair just told me that we have yet another review. This is
0: almost getting normal.
1: It's it's so great! Thank you so much to everyone who's reviewing or just simply rating it. It's making us appear easier. it's making us appear faster on the searches on iTunes. And, and we're seeing it.
0: We are seeing people that we have no connection to starting to find us. And it's because of you, dear listeners. So thank you very much. Thank
1: you, beautiful yeah. listener.
0: It really, really does matter, as we're seeing. So this one's from Alvet. And uh, I won't outer, but we know who this is. <laughs> it's a close family friend of ours
1: who apparently has been hooked on the podcast since beginning
0: yeah yeah my mom actually told me that at one point like she they go walking together i think sometimes and so sometimes alvet knows more about us than my mom because she's heard the most recent episode He's like, did you hear that episode did you hear that episode so um thank you for being such an ardent fan we really appreciate it and it gives me a lot of joy to know you're listening so here's her review five stars great storytelling this review is long overdue i love listening to alistair and julie roxanne's adventures in life as i go about mine while i cook or travel to and from work this morning i was listening while working out at the gym today's episode number 21 is an incredibly intimate look into their lives so much wisdom in two young people they have the best chemistry and are so funny You can tell how much they care about each other and the world around them. You too will fall in love with them. Thank you for sharing yourselves with us all. By the way, Alistair Julie Roxanne, on a personal note, the grapefruits are going to be perfect around July-August. Looking forward to seeing you when you come back to San Jose.
1: Oh my god, Alistair didn't read me the reviews beforehand, so it's like total surprise. Thank you so much for this. This is really, really moving. I'm really touched.
0: And I'll just say that thank you very much, Albat.
1: Well, hello, beautiful listener, and welcome to a brand new episode of Far Out Podcast. Hey there. We hope you are doing wonderfully. Today we have a special episode for you. We have just come back from a trip in the Pyrenees where we walked on the famous pilgrimage, El Camino de Santiago. And if you don't know about it. Now you know. uh, Now you know. That works. In this episode we talk about our experience, what we did, but mainly we share war stories and horror stories of our treks in the past and sometimes also this one to give you some tips of what to do and what not to do on a long-distance walking trip.
0: Yeah, this is the do's and don'ts of long-distance walking and this was inspired by a lot of don'ts on our recent (laughs) Camino walk.
1: (laughs) Proof that you can be trekking for years and still make stupid mistakes. Stay tuned.
0: Let's get into it. Let's
1: get into
0: it. Good morning, good morning, good morning.
1: Good morning, Alistair. And good morning to you, beautiful listener. Somewhere in the world. What's going on?
0: (laughs) Well, we have some life updates.
1: Yeah, a few, a few major life updates.
0: One that's unscripted is I'm uh, getting some comments that I'm getting a little bit better at French. Ah!
1: (laughs) <laughs> yeah you know, it's like, true, we pronunciation
0: wise, and, and I'm starting to understand more.
1: My mom overheard him on the phone the other day and she said that he's finally ready to marry me because he's speaking. <sighs> Thank God. He's, he sounds Close French. call. Close, Close call. We're two weeks out. <laughs> two...
0: And now I'm finally ready. According to your mom, it's good.
1: Actually, by the time you listen to this episode, we will be married. How freaky is that?
0: Yes, right now we're not married. And when you listen to this, we will be married. <laughs> and I am still trying to come to terms with, with those two opposites too. <laughs>
1: it's
0: terrifying
1: oh in the meantime other life updates that happened yeah
0: big one we uh we got some new incense burning right now
1: oh yeah we found it we we, we ordered it but you didn't know it was in the in the box right well i
0: just haven't got we have so much incense <laughs> that <laughs> we still have bought we still have boxes of it <laughs> that we haven't got to because there's so much up there it's gonna take a year to burn through it. So
1: yesterday, he just told me like, oh my God, I found, I found a good one. What is it?
0: It's dragon's blood. <laughs> that's the name of it. And uh, that's really appealing to me. Actually, I've been working on a small project on the side recently. Well, why not? Let's talk about it. I uh, hired someone to have a pelly dragon drawn. So what, what is a pelly dragon, you ask? <laughs> I'm glad you asked because I'd like to tell you, a pelly dragon is my spirit animal. One of the questions we ask our retreat goers, which I think is interesting, is, do you have a spirit animal? So this has got us into conversations about, you know, what the trip leaders' spirit animals are. And it's fun to listen to, you know, and everyone's, you know, someone picked a beaver. I thought that was awesome. Yeah, that
1: that is awesome. That was maybe
0: my favorite one.
1: I should have thought about that, honestly.
0: Yeah, yeah. And so you hear why, and like, it's just interesting to hear the things people admire about different animals. So I have two, um, historically. Uh, one is real, one's mythical, one's a pelican, and one's a dragon, uh, and these have been kind of my power animals for a while. And uh, so I started joking on these calls that like sometimes it's a peli dragon. And then you suggested recently that maybe I should try to have a peli dragon drawn. Yeah. So I did, <laughs> and it turned out great.
1: It's amazing. It's amazing. It's amazing. You hired a really, really oh, good yeah, guy. Oh yeah.
0: Yeah. I found I found a pretty talented artist in Ukraine. And he worked with me over the course of a week, week and a half. We went through two drafts. The first one was a bit too angry, violent. And then we worked on a second one, which was more benevolent. Turned out great. And uh, we are going to... No, you're going to have to wait. It's going to come out on my website. It's going to be part of my website when I launch, which is going to happen. Sooner or later, I've been working on it since the beginning of the year.
1: Yeah, it takes a long time to work on websites. And you will
0: see this beautiful pelly Dragon. We'll make sure. It's amazing. As far as I know, it's the first Pelly Dragon in the history of the world. I've done a Google search. You have? Yeah. Oh, wow. And everyone knows that that's the official way to find if something exists or not.
1: (laughs) And there is not a
0: Pelly (laughs) Dragon on there. So, listener, this is the first Pelly Dragon. This is a historical moment. And it's pretty incredible. You
1: should maybe trademark it the Pelly Dragon concept. Maybe. Yeah, yeah, Just, maybe I should. Maybe there's money to be I made. I should definitely I don't spend think money anywhere. in trademarking. This. That makes know. a lot of sense. Because someone
0: might steal the Pelly Dragon and then use it for profit, and I would be pissed. <laughs> 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 all right, all right. So the last part of this life update. So
1: moving on from no. the the Pelly Dragon. Yeah, from
0: moving on from the Pelly Dragon, uh, is tea. We got some new teas. I we, thought we I thought you guys would
1: like to know this. We've stopped saying what tea we were having because it was getting boring. We were getting the same thing. And then the other day, I was just, I was just at the shop and I got a little crazy. And I bought three new teas. Yeah, On top
0: of like three teas I bought the week before because I had gotten bored <laughs> too. So we now have a very full tea collection.
1: And so what are we drinking this morning?
0: I am drinking a raspberry pomegranate rooibos tea.
1: Doesn't it's, that sound killer it's
0: delicious it's yeah. great yes and i'm
1: drinking a peach apricot rooibos and uh, i think it's called cuddle delight mm. or something which i, I like great. that
0: one it's kind of surprising i never picked that one myself but but you did and uh, it turned out really good
1: mm-hmm. I like
0: it.
1: so what are we talking about this week
0: we're talking about the do's and don'ts of walking mm-hmm. long distance walking
1: how did we come up with this? Because I think we need to give some context.
0: Yeah. So this came out of our recent walk on the Camino de Santiago. For those of you who may not know about the Camino, it is an ancient pilgrimage, possibly over a thousand years old. Mm-hmm. I think the first dates are somewhere in like the 9th the century or the 10th century. Yes. And basically, it's a Christian pilgrimage. People start from all over Spain and all over France, the main Camino de Santiago starts in the mountains on the French side and goes across the northern landmass of Spain and ends in Santiago. But people usually started walking this from their homes. And a lot of people walked it from France. So you can start basically anywhere in France. And France has a good walking culture too. So there's a lot of trails, and it's pretty common to see people walking a lot of times a Camino or similar routes So you can pretty much start anywhere, walk out your door, and slowly you will kind of trickle in to one of the Caminos. And by the time you get to the mountains, you will be on the Camino de Santiago.
1: Yeah, actually, in the Middle Ages, people started walking from their homes from all over Europe, not just France and Spain, Mm. people from Germany. And I mean, it wasn't Germany back then, but people from all over Europe were walking to Santiago de Compostela. So it's a very ancient pilgrimage. And we have done this walk because it's going to be part of one of the retreats that we are doing this year with our retreat company. And if you're interested in more details about this particular retreat, we're going to mention those later in the conversation, probably near the end of this episode, so stick around for that. But in the meantime, we went to trek this portion of the Camino.
0: And the plan with this retreat is to spend most of our time in the Basque country, and specifically the Pyrenees region of southwest France and northeast Spain. And this is something we've wanted to do for a while because the Pyrenees are a very ancient mountain range. They're very captivating. We spent a little bit of time in them, and we'd like to spend more time in them. One thing that we're going to do on the retreat is, and this is getting a little bit ahead, but is we're going to go visit the caves of Gargas, which are prehistoric ancient caves with prehistoric paintings in them that date back to 27,000 years.
1: Yeah. Just take a moment and think about this number because I still find it impossible to really imagine that people like you and me, same species, same kind of body, same everything, 27,000 years ago were painting their hands in a cave.
0: It boggles the mind. I mean, we're talking woolly mammoths at this time. It's, It's just, it's hard to comprehend and it's... I don't know many other words to describe it than a spiritual experience to walk down into a cave, out of the light into, you know, you need lights, you can't see anything. Caves are pitch black. You have, you know, the deformations and kind of the murky underworld, the shadowy kind of netherworld of a cave. Like what kind of experience must that have been 27,000 years ago? And what kind of experience is it still now? It's it's very captivating and it just it really gets the imagination going. And then to see these paintings, yeah. It's we
1: we went a couple of weeks ago to to uh, get the experience ourselves. It's amazing. I cannot wait to take the group there. It's yeah. gonna be really, really cool.
0: So Another part of it is we wanted to walk in the mountains. And that's kind of how we came across the Camino de Santiago, because it was an excuse to go walk in the Pyrenees, which is really what we wanted to do.
1: Yeah, I think my dad gave me the idea, actually. I remember now that that's right. we were thinking about doing a trek in the Pyrenees National Park, and we realized, oh no, that's even better. And it is really cool because the Basque region is such a specific region and culture in Europe. There's a mysticality to it also, it's very old. From my knowledge, I think that the language that they still speak there, linguists all over the world are trying to figure out where it comes from, because it's linked to no other known roots, language roots, no Indo-European, no nothing, we don't know where it's coming from, and they're still speaking it there. And it's a very uh, fiercely independent kind of mountain culture. Although not just the mountains, they're also uh, on the ocean, on the northern part of Spain. And yeah, it's the town where we start is actually a very typical Basque city.
0: Yeah, so the Basques tend to identify themselves as Basque and not Spanish or French. hmm And the culture has stayed pretty preserved because they're, like you said, pretty fierce about that. Yeah. So it makes a very interesting place to go explore. And we start in Saint-Jean, which is on the French side of the Pyrenees and really the traditional starting point of the Camino as it's known. Of course, many people have walked already for a month, month and a half by the time they get to Saint-Jean. So Saint-Jean is actually like a a midway point for Mm -hmm. them. But it's also one of the most picturesque parts of the Camino. It's also the most challenging part of the Camino. So we thought that'd be a great place to take people.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And so we took ourselves first. So what was the plan of our little trip there?
0: The plan was we started in Saint-Jean, this beautiful Basque mountain town. It's gorgeous. You have the cobblestone streets. You have the, the painted buildings. It's just a really interesting... It used to be an old trader's town on the border of the mountains. And uh, apparently this region was militarily strategic. It was where a lot of battles were fought. A lot of armies kind of met in the mountain areas here because it's a natural border between kingdoms and, and stuff like that.
1: And there was a lot of fighting over the Charlemagne,
0: region. Charlemagne, Napoleon, actually the route we're taking is called the Napoleon route. Mm-hmm. So the plan was to, on the first day, walk out of the countryside, into the mountains, cross two mountain passes, and then over the next two days, we'd continue walking through the mountains, valley, foothill region of the Pyrenees, and end up in the historic and beautiful city of Pamplona on the Spanish side. All the while, we would be walking through a lot of different environments. You have French countryside, gorgeous French countryside, You have the mountain regions. Then you have these kind of foothill Spanish villages, very ancient. There's architecture dating back to 12th, 13th century. A lot of kind of interesting historical points. We walk through a witch's woods Mm. where there used to be witch covens and uh, witches burnt at the stake. And then we end up in a more modern contemporary by European standards, at least, city. So it's a very interesting kind of walk-through time mm-hmm. as well, as well as a walk-through many different kinds of environments.
1: Another fun thing that I think we'll mention here is that walking a pilgrimage is very interesting. We met people from all different walks of life on this, on this trip. An Austrian music producer, a Stanford college student, a Basque student a couple of uh, German dudes who were walking together, just such a, such a very, two French people, a mother and their their son, who didn't really speak any English, but I could like kind of translate. We had very interesting conversations, things that I would not have considered or thought about were brought up during those conversations in the evenings, and it makes it a very socially rich and culturally rich trip.
0: Yeah, it's a good melting pot for Western Europe and also for different perspectives on the Christian faith. Although I will say that most of the people walking weren't Christian.
1: It wasn't that the focus, no, it didn't, or at least if it was, I think it was a very personal focus and they didn't, it wasn't, the conversation was not about that.
0: I should say most of the people we met walking didn't seem Christian. Yes. So that was the plan.
1: That was the plan. And on the first day, due to a lot of mistakes that we're going to cover on this episode, this is why we had the idea to make this episode today. I injured myself. I didn't realize I injured myself until the next day. Although I, I was in pain, but I didn't realize that it was that bad. And when I woke up on the second morning, I could not walk. Or should I say, I could not lift my left leg.
0: You should so. have seen us after the first day. So we made some pretty big mistakes that ended up meaning that we were carrying... I was carrying 15 kilograms, so roughly 40 pounds we logistically didn't plan very well we left on Easter weekend didn't realize oh hey maybe that means that things are going to be booked on a Christian pilgrimage Mm -hmm. (laughs) totally did not make that connection I didn't even know it was Easter I I didn't
1: even know either
0: so we ended up having to walk quite a bit further than we planned The first day of walking, we walked for... Like, 11 hours. 11 hours. I mean,
1: with breaks, like, included breaks, but that's the day... And it was our first
0: day walking. This is the hardest day of the Camino, and we just... we, We got cocky. So, anyway, all this led to us being just beaten and battered by the end of it. We were... We were a sorry sight to see at the end of the day. We could barely walk
1: mm-hmm, at mm-hmm. all.
0: It was a lot of pain. You couldn't lift your leg. And it really got bad in the morning when we when the damage really took its toll. You stopped there. You actually took taxis to the next two towns because you, you just couldn't walk.
1: I couldn't walk. I needed to really take it easy for two days. Now I'm fine.
0: I toughed uh, it out. But I also did some, some damage to my knee and my calf a little bit that I'm still recovering from a week later.
1: Yeah. So and it, all it this could have been avoided too. with better planning, which sucks. Which
0: which is, it's so ridiculous for me particularly because I'm in the process of giving out advice and what not to do to all the people coming on our Yosemite retreat. <laughs> and here I am doing all the things I said I should, we shouldn't do. This is the difference between knowledge and wisdom. Knowledge is so easy to hand out. Wisdom is, is living your own knowledge. And... Uh, And sometimes
1: sometimes you just don't. You're usually really, really good about this. I think it's important to mention that the month of April has been pretty hard. We have worked a lot. And preparing for this trip, we didn't really have a lot of time. And and we kind of prepared, I think, less than perfectly.
0: Half-hazardly.
1: Yes. And And so we didn't really think about... We didn't really think it through very much. And we left... But we did it. It's we're fine. (laughs)
0: There's also another aspect of this, which is that we've done some pretty challenging treks together and and on our own. We've walked in Nepal for over a month, and I mean, we were just kind of laughing at the beginning when people like, "Oh, this one's challenging." We were like, "Okay, yeah, we see that. It's not." We we were kind of like laughing at the hills that were supposed to be challenging. The thing is that if you haven't been trekking for a while, you're not in the same trekking shape as when you've been walking in Nepal for two weeks. So yeah. you you can't do that. Your body has to adjust. And it doesn't matter what you've done in the past or how hardcore you are. Your body has limits. And it takes some time to build up to those things. So we were coming in with this attitude, was like, yeah, don't tell me about hard. Have you been to Nepal, bro? Yeah, I know.
1: we were we were being super cocky and and uh, and then we
0: were the ones that couldn't walk the next day. Yeah, exactly. So it's uh, walking is humbling.
1: Yeah, it is, this is very <laughs> humbling, and. Yeah, it, it was a, a wonderful trip, though. I mean, even even from the taxi on day two and three, I could see that it was. I was sad I couldn't walk, and you said that you had really it nice days of walking. Yeah. The first day was amazing, uh, as far as like before I started really being in pain. But <laughs> it was really cool.
0: By the end of that first day, we were in pretty low spirits, and uh, <laughs> at the end of the day. We still had to cook our food because we can't... Eating is actually one of the highlights of a trip like this because you're going to all these albergues, the food kind of changes, the Basque region is known for its food. But unfortunately, we're plant-based and we both have gluten. gluten. yeah. Yeah, we both have gluten sensitivities. So we had to bring all our own food, hence why our backpacks were so heavy. So at the end of the day, after all of this, we still had to cook our own food and we did that in this small, we were so tired, so beat up. And we were in this small Spanish village where we finally found a room. And uh, well, maybe we should just roll the tape so you can get a get a feel for, for how we were feeling that day. We are now in a little like doorway under a very small like eave of a roof because it started raining and uh, we were out in the open. So we moved here, we have about a foot of space in the doorway to, to cook food. The door is locked from the outside, so we're not too worried. And we are just kind of leaning against the wall, trying not to get wet. It looks like the worst of the rain is over now though. So that walk, which we're still recovering from, was the inspiration for this talk, <laughs> which is the do's and don'ts of long distance walking. We thought we'd talk about a few of the things that can make and break a walk, any kind of walk. There's a lot of long distance kind of walks. It could be a pilgrimage or something more social or it could be something more adventurous like in Nepal and the Himalayas. Or maybe you're just going out into your local forest and, and getting lost for a few days. Mm-hmm. Those all kind of all fall under the umbrella of long distance walking. Anything over, I would say, 50, 50 kilometers and taking a few days. So why don't we start with some of the practical tips?
1: Some basic things that even, even that we couldn't follow on this trip.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. So the first one uh, is plan. Yeah. I know this sounds pretty obvious, right? But we didn't plan for this trip very much at all. It was kind of like, I don't know, as a traveler, I have a mentality these, most of these days. And this works in Asia very well. It doesn't work so well in the West. I just go and see. Yeah. just go and show up. Yeah. And That works because one, Asia's cheap. So if something happens, you're Even not going to be yeah. you're not going to be put out for anything that you get surprised by. But two, you don't have the scheduling problems that you have in the west. Like a lot of times things are reserved and booked. There isn't that kind of order in a lot of Asian cities and towns. So you can just show up and you're going to find somewhere and if you don't, you just camp off off the side of the road or something. It's it's about, a lot more chaotic. But here There's a lot more rules. There's a lot more order. People have reserved things six months ahead. People are thinking about their September vacations in January. And you can't just show up to a lot of places. And if you do, you can end up in a bit of trouble or end up paying a hell of a lot more than you wanted to.
1: This is what happened on our first night because we didn't realize that there was not gonna be any space First of all, we didn't realize it was going to be so crowded, and then we didn't realize that there was not going to be enough beds in that mountain town where everyone was going to stop to accommodate everyone. And so by the end, when we got there, it was too late to get a bed, and we had to walk another two kilometers to get a, to get a bed in a hotel, so that was a major price difference.
0: It wasn't just walking another two kilometers because we had actually planned on only doing seven kilometers that first day. And we learned that that place was booked too. So we were going to break up this walk over two days and do it pretty luxuriously. And then on the spot, we found out, no, you can't do that. And then when we finished the walk, we didn't have a bed. So we had to keep walking.
1: And so I think we did about 30 kilometers that first day. Yeah,
0: plus 1,500 meters up and about... 600 meters down yeah with 40 pound packs and without physically preparing so I think the moral of the story is that this walk was also very different usually I don't have to do that kind of planning because I just bring a tent and a sleeping bag and I sleep wherever I want mm-hmm. but this was more of a social walk you can't camp in these places it's when you, you
1: go through cities and stuff so it's harder to find a spot to camp yeah too. you
0: have to plan for beds. so I think the point here is that each walk has different logistical hurdles to overcome. A walk like this, the major logistical hurdle for us was actually getting a bed. Like the food, the water, these things were all sorted. It was just actually having a reservation for a bed. Whereas usually I will go out with a sleeping bag and a tent and I, I don't even have to think about that. And one of the dangers is when you have to get a bed is you have to keep walking till you get a bed. And if you haven't planned that out well, that can be an easy way to injure yourself, which you're not going to do when you're outdoors by yourself and you can just stop when you're tired. So in other walks, if you're out in the wild, maybe it's more water and food, but here the biggest problem was capacity. And we had not taken that into account.
1: Another thing to plan for if you're going to camp in the wild is safety and, you know, just making sure that uh, you know where you are, that you've planned for any weather, that you've planned for the cold and stuff. For instance, one thing I never really anticipated was how, for me, if I'm going to trek in July, then it's summer. I didn't realize that if you go into the mountains high enough in July, it's not going to be summer. It's going to be winter and you're going to need to prepare for cold, cold nights. So I think this is something to mention too.
0: Especially if you're going to be away from civilization. And if you're going into the mountains even for a day, you're away from civilization. You need to have a way at all times to stay dry and to stay warm. Because things can get very dangerous very quickly if you're wet and you're cold.
1: And you need to plan for exit routes as well.
0: Yes, I actually have a story about that. I remember one time I was hiking alone in the Fagarash, which is the Carpathian Mountains in Romania. And I had been kind of doing a ridge route for a couple of days and I had planned to do the whole route. I was at around 3,300 meters, and I was staying in one of these kind of mountain huts. Earlier that day, I had ran across a shepherd. It was one of the first people I had seen that day, and he was kind of a mountain person. And he had pointed me. I had given him a lighter. He needed a lighter. And then so in exchange, he had pointed me to a spring, a mountain spring. And it was bubbling out of the ground at the top of the mountain. So I thought, okay, well, this water's got to be safe. No, it turned out it wasn't, and it makes more sense now. It's like there were sheep everywhere shitting on the ground, Uh. so that can kind of get into that water, even if it's bubbling up right there. I didn't make that connection. He told me it was safe. It probably was for him. I drank the water. That night, I was puking all night in the mountain shelter. And the problem with that is now in the morning, you're extremely weak. You have to recover. But I'm at 3,300 meters, and the weather's unstable, And luckily, I had exit routes planned. So there was an easy way out of the mountains that took me a day and Mm. most of my strength. And then I could get to a place where I could recover. But if I was a little deeper in the mountains, that can become a pretty dangerous situation because you're going to have to recover in a pretty hostile environment. Another part on this plan for emergencies and the worst is letting someone else know where you're going and how long you're going to be gone. It's just a basic precaution. And if it ever comes to it, you just really want to make sure that you've done it because at least someone knows when you should be back and someone knows where you might be if you don't return.
1: Bring your map is also part of that planning thing.
0: Yeah, and not all maps are made equal.
1: Yeah, no, for sure.
0: You definitely want a map that's detailed enough to give you a sense of the terrain and that you can navigate from. We once walked in Nepal with a whitewater rafting map. And that was that was bold
1: i would say yeah we kind i think we hoped rightly so that we would walk through villages and we could ask for our direction but yeah that that was a bit that was a bit bold
0: yeah it worked because we knew that we had another map which was the locals there and we were always going to be walking through villages and between the two we were able to triangulate where we were supposed to go but (laughs) if it was just that whitewater rafting map it would have been uh, problematic it's always good to have different ways like some redundancy in in navigating like don't just have a map don't just rely on people like do both Mm. have a compass know how to use it try to keep your attention on landmarks as well have multiple ways to navigate because the thing is You know, you look at forests from a distance or on a map and you're like, oh, yeah, obvious. You just have to walk through it. But forests look really different when you're in them. Yeah. As do mountains, because every side of the mountain is a very different perspective. It's really easy to get turned around in a forest or on, you know, the steep face of a mountain. It's really, you lose perspective.
1: Yeah. I think you made a good point that bring a map, bring a compass, know how to use it. Because we, we have a story like this actually in Yosemite last year when we were tracking the route we're going to take people on. And now we uh, are much more prepared. But we had a map. We had a compass. We felt, we felt pretty good about that. We felt pretty happy. And then when came the time to actually ask ourselves, okay, where do we need to go? We realized that we did not know how to read a map with a compass. It, it, we, we got like really lost and I mean, not really lost, but we walked the same trail back and forth three times that day. And uh, by the end of the day, we were both really pissed.
0: Yeah, luckily that was not a life or death situation. No. We, we weren't far out, but make sure you know how to use your map and uh, compass. <laughs> <laughs> Another one is pay attention to the sun. So as a redhead, obviously, put sunscreen on uh. and cover yourself. Especially if you're in the mountains, the sun is a lot stronger. And this happened to you on this trip actually, yeah. is you don't burn. And so you weren't worried about sunscreen. I forgot to bring sunscreen, which is crazy. As a redhead in the mountains, that's suicide. Uh. That is just suicide. <laughs> Luckily I found a Canadian that was almost as white as me. And she shared her sunscreen. Uh. Cause you know, if, if anyone asks you for sunscreen, you're like, yeah, I got you, bro. Don't worry. Uh. Like, you know, you're always going to share your sunscreen with a fellow pale person. It's uh, <laughs> That's just decent courtesy right there. <laughs> but <laughs> I had forgotten to bring sunscreen. You didn't wear it and didn't really shade yourself well. And you were pretty dehydrated by the end of the yeah, day. Was... And you hadn't realized that that was... That a lot of times you don't realize these things until after. In yeah. the moment, there's so much going on that, like, you lose your head a little bit. And it's only later you're just, like, facepalm, yeah. what was I thinking... I wasn't drinking enough, I I was suffering from sun exposure. So pay attention to the sun. Another reason you need to pay attention to the sun is know how much daylight you have left. Know when the sun sets and always err on the side of having a couple extra hours if you can to figure out things if you need to. Don't put yourself in a situation where the sun's setting and you need to be somewhere and you're racing against the sun because one of the most dangerous situations I've gotten myself into Again, this one was in Romania in a different mountain range. This was in Piatra Criuli, which is a beautiful, small little mountain range, set of mountains. And I had made a lot of the mistakes we're talking about right here. Carried way too much, was way too ambitious on my day. I tend to walk pretty fast when I'm alone, so I can cover a lot of ground. But I got myself in a situation where I got on the ridge. I, I think I climbed 3,000 meters in a day, which is like mm-hmm. dumb. No, it's, it's a lot. Yeah, and I had a pretty heavy pack. And I got to the top, it was late in the day, and there was nowhere to camp because uh, all the shelters were taken and I hadn't camped at that altitude at that point before, so I was a bit concerned about doing it. There wasn't a lot of shelter. So I needed to go down the other side of the mountain and it was incredibly steep and I was alone and now the sun was coming down and I was getting lost. I was walking off the trail because it was so unclear and then all of a sudden you come around a, a little ridge and it's just a cliff.
1: Oh my God. You know,
0: these are areas where you could just, you could walk off the mountain mm-hmm. on accident. And, you know, you have the scree, like kind of the loose rocks, you mm-hmm. know, so it's, you could be, and here, here's the other thing is that at the end of the day like that, this is when you're most likely to injure yourself is when you're going down and when you're almost done and mm-hmm. your brain's already checking out, your body's extremely tired and you're going downhill. So like all your weight is kind of going on to your feet. This is when injuries are most likely to happen. And now I have another element, which is I'm seriously worried that I'm going to get stranded on the side of the mountain and be completely exposed with nowhere really to camp and not be able to continue because it's too dark and too dangerous. It's one of the few times where I had a very long talk with God on that one. And it was extremely terrifying.
1: What happened?
0: I was so tired. I was so exhausted. I made it down just after sunset. So I got off the main part of the mountain. Uh, It was the most glorious sunset I've ever seen. I Mm. just, I I couldn't even stop really. I have a few pictures, but I could barely stop to enjoy it because I was just watching. I was panicking. I was watching the sun go down. I'm alone. Pretty deep in it at this point. And I just got out of there in time. I went off the trail a couple times. It could have been dangerous. And I was able to, you know, once I got in the forest, it was okay to walk in the dark. I put a headlamp on and I made it. I think I walked, I walked over 12 or 13 hours that day. By the time I got to the the shelter, I was beat. There was, I think there was a Romanian there. I took one swig of his whiskey and just went to bed.
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Sometimes you just can't be bothered to even feed yourself at night. The
0: the problem is you, you make a mistake like that where you overextend yourself and... You might be cutting your trip short because you do that, and you you might just not be able to make it. You yeah. you may what would have been a totally reasonable trip becomes a lot more difficult if you just wear yourself down to that point. You're also increasing the chances many times over that you're going to sustain a serious injury.
1: I think you just give your mo- you just gave your mom a lot of uh, sweats right there with this story. Yeah.
0: <laughs> so pay attention to the sun. Another one is know your water sources. On a pilgrimage, it's not going to be a problem. If you're in Nepal, it's going to be a bit more, you're, you're going to need to at least have a water filter or a pan or something where you can clean the water because none of the water is going to be safe to drink. If you're in the wilderness, then you need to know where your water is actually going to come from. Mm-hmm. What time of year are you there? Are the creeks running? Can you rely on the creeks on the map being there? If you're in the mid of summer, you need to make sure that the water sources are more reliable than that. And this can become a major point of planning.
1: Another one that is uh, a pretty important thing on the practical side. Do not wear new shoes. Do not wear new shoes. Man, and Alistair did this on this trip.
0: I, I'm embarrassed to say it because I'm, I'm worried someone going on the retreat is going to listen to this. And be like, dude, you've been telling me that like for the last month. Don't wear new shoes. What the hell, man? Yeah.
1: Maybe w- but maybe maybe say why you had to wear new shoes. Oh
0: man, that's painful too cuz I left my old shoes on the train when we were coming back to France. Yeah. I left them under the seat.
1: And you were facing the fact that you were probably going to have to do this trek with a pair of running shoes and a pair of like kind of boots that would be waterproof because you didn't have a pair of walking waterproof shoes which which i
0: probably should have just done the pair of running shoes and been like okay well my feet get wet they get wet we were going to end in dry places anyway so it wasn't going to be a big deal but yeah so i uh got inspired we actually went to a decathlon which is like a a trekking or sports shop before we had to go there for something else walked by the shoe aisle there was a pair that caught my eye. <laughs> they fit perfectly. It was like the Cinderella story. And if you find a good pair of walking shoes, it's not every day. You kind of have to capitalize on it. So I got inspired. They felt nice and cushy. It's like, nah, these are going to be fine. I can, it's just a three-day walk. It's not, you know, it's not going to be a big deal. It's I, not I a do serious this. walk. Yeah, it's not that serious. So I didn't follow my own advice. And by midday on the first day, I had a pretty big blister forming it was getting and there's another good point here is when you start feeling hot spots stop immediately and deal with them on your feet because yeah. that is a sign that you're forming blisters and you want to get ahead of that so i did and then i reached in my backpack and realized oh my god i forgot to think about packing band-aids or blister or, or plasters yeah what? which is like basic yeah what do basic. you basic don't go on a long walk without band-aids and plasters you <laughs> moron <laughs> I got lucky. There were a few in there. Just, just a couple that were actually in there. <laughs> so, so it wasn't too big a deal and they saved the day. I was able, to, basically you're able to stop it. Yeah. So if you get a, you get a plaster on it.
1: Oh, plasters can, are amazing. Yeah,
0: you can prevent it from getting any worse. And let me tell you, my first walk ever was in, my first long distance walk when I was first getting into this thing. It was about three years ago and I was walking in the West Highland Way in the highlands of Scotland. Gorgeous walk. It's, I forget how many days it's supposed to be. I think it's supposed to be like nine or 10. I didn't get past, I made it short of that. And I didn't know any of the things I know about walking now. I was walking alone. I was just pumped up about it. It was great. I was inspired by nature and the walk. And I did a few really big days early, classic thing not to do. And i started developing really bad blisters. I knew they were bad when I, one day I was walking near the end of a day And all of a sudden I collapsed, I shrieked and like collapsed in pain and I took off my shoe and it was soaked red. A blood blister had popped and I had to walk for like, I tried to, I walked for another two days. So the thing about blisters is that as long as it doesn't get infected, so now I'm treating them for infections. Basically I have to bandage them and treat them every, every time I take my shoes off. My foot is just a swollen, bloody, pussy mess at this point. Uh, But as long as it hasn't become infected, you can continue to walk on it as as much pain as there is. And let me tell you, the pain was awful. I was taking taking a lot of painkillers. By the end of it, I didn't make it to the final town, my goal. I was going to climb Ben Nevis, which is the tallest mountain, in quotes, in, in the UK. I didn't make it. And I remember I, oh, the last day I was coming down, like uh, there's a descent out of the mountains on this like gravelly kind of walk, which means that you have to be very careful because like your feet are kind of slippery and it's rocky. Mm. I was in so much pain. I was walking pigeon footed like inches at a time, inches, inches. And every step I was wincing and just screaming pain. By the time I got to the town, one of my friends who had kind of like, you know, you walk with them, they get ahead of you, you see each other in the next town. He saw me come in and I'll never forget the look on his face. It was like I was the walking dead. He, you know, it was just that, was that look, you, it's just like, you're done.
1: Oh, uh, you know? yeah, yeah. Like
0: he couldn't hide it on his face. <laughs> it was just like, oh God, you've, there's something wrong with you, man. And I ended up having to take a bus and I ended up in the urgent care room in, in Scotland and the doctor... His medical advice was that I uh, walk down to the lake and I dunk my feet in the ice-cold lake, which was like salty for an hour. So I did that. (laughs) That was the end of my first walk.
1: Yeah, it's crazy how it's easy to underestimate the god-awfulness of trekking with a new pair of shoes. I I did that because I didn't really have the choice when we trekked our first trek together. I didn't have a pair of trekking shoes. We were in India. I bought a pair of good trekking shoes. I tried to break them in as much as possible, but, you know, you need to take, like, proper hikes to, to break them in. And I was just walking up and down the hill of the town, so that didn't really work and the first couple the first day i think was okay the second day we had to do the biggest climb and my feet were just covered in blisters and it's it's just impossible to take a step like and i had to walk i, I can't remember how much elevation we gained that we gained that day but the last section of the walk was just infinite stairs infinite like taking steps up and up This is the time where I learned learned the power of uh, really having to take it one step at a time and hoping to God that you make it because it it was so, so painful. Blisters
0: can ruin any walk.
1: Yeah, yeah. One good thing about, so we mentioned plasters, band-aids, painkillers. Very important to bring with you when you track.
0: My my go-to in the mornings when I'm in a lot of pain is an ibuprofen, and a strong cup of coffee. <laughs> that gets me through almost anything.
1: <laughs> this is the only time where Alistair actually drinks coffee is when he's striking most of the time. Yeah, I mean.
0: Caffeinated coffee.
1: Yeah, yeah. And also very important, wool socks.
0: Wool socks are the best. Should we explain why or should we just leave it at that?
1: Yeah, <laughs> explain why.
0: All right, well, they don't retain odor and they're cool in the summer and they're warm in the winter. And... They're pretty padded, too. They're pretty thick. Yeah, so.
1: uh, they're they're uh, amazing. And uh, we actually recommend the brand Darn Tough. Because they are lifetime guaranteed. guaranteed.
0: And they're great. They're, they're really good socks. They're, they're really good. Don't pack too much. Oh, God. Here's the reason why you don't want to pack too much. Is because every ounce or every gram, if you're European, that you add to your pack adds the probability adds to the risk that you may sustain an injury. It's a probability game. And every piece of weight adds to that chance. You just don't wanna risk it. You want to be as careful as you can. So don't bring that stuff that you think might be nice for that one occasion that's never gonna happen. Don't bring that stuff that every other time you've gone, you've never used. Don't bring it, just don't. Be as Spartan as you possibly can. We didn't do that.
1: For a lot of different reasons that we already mentioned, we didn't do that. We didn't really pack very mindfully. That's the first thing. We were both tired when we packed for after trip. the
0: After the first day, we looked in our pack and I realized we probably should not have brought the jar of peanut butter in the glass jar and the jar of jam in the glass jar.
1: I also, I know I was in charge of packing the food, so I had to like kind of defend myself on this. We had no other container to bring those things. That was, that's what was hard is we just, we packed, we didn't prepare. We yeah, packed at so the last minute and we needed to bring those, those nut butters because they're very good and nutritious for you. But we didn't have, they were in the glass jar and I didn't have any other thing to put them into. We didn't have any ziplocks or anything. Usually Ziplocs all the way, everything in Ziplocs. That's the best strategy you can do for trekking. But we didn't have any. So, yeah.
0: I don't know how many treks I've gone on. And sometimes when I'm traveling, I have to take everything I'm traveling with on the trek. Because I'm Mm -hmm. going from A to B and I don't have anywhere to leave things. That that happened quite a bit. And I don't know how many times I'd be walking in the mountains. And I would just, one by one, be going through everything in my pack that had no use Uh. on a trek. And just, you know, when you're walking for five, ten days with a laptop... In your backpack (laughs) you think about it every day why the hell am i carrying a laptop up to a 5000 meter peak why
1: i think maybe this is a this is a good time to talk about the lemon squeezer
0: oh my god Ah.
1: (laughs) (laughs) i did not anticipate but i think I think this is a good time to talk about the lemon squeezer. When we were
0: in India and I first met you, you had a lemon squeezer, which actually came from like when you were in a more tropical area of India. And now we were in Bundi, and it was still useful. We were squeezing lemons with it
1: and making like lemon water in the
0: yeah, morning. Yeah. Really useful. Lemon squeezer, it, but it's kind of this bulky like metal apparatus. <laughs> it's it's kind of heavy and like if you're not squeezing lemons with it, totally useless. <laughs> and and you had this in India, which is fine because we were using it. But, halfway through our trek in
1: Nepal... Halfway! We left Darjeeling to trek for two weeks, and there we had to carry everything that we owned because we didn't have anywhere to leave it. Then we arrived in Namche, which is the starting point for the Everest treks, and it's like you do a loop and then you come back to Namche. So where we were at the hostel, we left things in a bag to trek with a, a lighter bag. We were stoked the day we left. We had super light bags. We had left our computers. We had left all things that didn't make any sense. That and we'd I had been already... walking with
0: for two weeks yeah. through extremely difficult terrain in Nepal.
1: Yeah. And I had already given up a few things on those first two weeks. And I was just like lightening the load. But it's hard. Those are things that like they're, they're my stuff. It's hard to give up stuff. you know. They had a lot of emotional meaning and everything. And you will
0: find a way to give up stuff, though, if you're carrying it for long periods for of time. Sure. All of a sudden, you're just throwing crap that's, out of your pack. Like, okay, don't, a, need that <laughs> don't need that anymore. Don't need that anymore. Why did I ever think I needed that? <laughs> and you'd already gone through that phase.
1: Yeah, I did. I did. So we had left the essentials that we needed to survive, but not essentials that we, like, we needed to bring on the trek. We would left them in Namche. And then I think th- the, that day we left we stopped at a place and we made some tea for ourselves and the lemon squeezer had been stored in the tea bag prior to this in the first two weeks of that
0: big bulky heavy lemon squeezer you went to the bathroom and asked me to make tea
1: yeah and i didn't realize and and i came back out and you were holding the lemon squeezer are you kidding me we're going to Everest Base Camp. We have put things in storage in Namch, and you kept the lemon squeezers. Oh my God. I didn't realize I brought it with me. I thought, you know, I didn't even look through the tea bag when I emptied my bag. A
0: lemon squeezer. There are no lemons within 50 miles <laughs> of this lemon squeezer. <laughs> and you're carrying it all the way to Everest. <laughs> I, w- I I was just, you were mind blown yeah I, yeah, yeah so yeah. then it became a running joke we had to carry it after that so like, you couldn't let it go there so we took it out and took pictures of it like near, with everest yes. and, uh, every pass that we did we pulled out the lemon squeezer that was the most extraneous thing you could possibly bring on a trekking trip to the everest region a lemon squeezer
1: yeah I think, I do think it's important to really, really stress this point out about the not packing too heavy. It's it's not about not bringing heavy stuff. It's don't bring anything that you're not going to use. Because as you said, those ounces, those grams, they add up. You brought a pair of jeans on our trek.
0: Yeah, this goes back to being cocky. I just didn't really take it that seriously.
1: And it's also because when you're not carrying the bag up a mountain, when you're just carrying it on flat land and doing two steps with it, you're like, oh, it's not that bad. Yeah, it's not that bad. But if you can lighten it, just do it. Yeah,
0: because you're going to take thousands and thousands of step, steps each day. Yeah. And each one of those steps, you're going to carry that thing <laughs> on your back. <laughs> and it gets it gets annoying after a while. It gets tiresome. Yeah. I think it's worth pointing out here that whatever you might have done in the past does not mean that's what you can do right now you have physical limitations have you trained for this are you ready for it or are you just walking out of the house and saying you're going to climb two mountain peaks on the first day that should probably be taken into account we didn't do that yeah i was thinking <laughs> you had a saying in your mind <laughs> that they came you you had read someone who's like an ultra marathon runner and he had a saying he's like uh, I think he was preparing for a marathon like two days after he decided to run it. Yeah. And he's like, well, I'm always in marathon running shape. And so you shared that your mental thinking on this was, you're like, yeah, I'm always in trekking shape. I know. Ridiculous. Ridiculous. That's how you end up taking a cab to the next town. <laughs>
1: Yes, it's true. It's true. I, I, I was, I'm not always in trekking shape. <laughs> and I, I think that brings us to the, this next, like, practical, basic point, which is ease into it, which is what we've done in all of our treks so far. Be- and this is why this was confusing this time around for me. And this is why I think I thought I was always in trekking shape because I'm not. I don't do a lot of sports. I don't work out. I don't really train between treks. I'm when I'm in treks, I'm I'm doing all right, and 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 I'm and I like it. But in in between, it's rare that I exercise. I would like to want to do that, but I don't really want to. But so far, we had just eased into treks on on Yosemite. I think the first day we only did like six miles or seven miles it it's fairly two. simple yeah. yeah and just very lightly going up not not a lot of walking on the darjeeling track i mean they're never in the history of me trekking have i done 11 hours of walking straight like super steep uphill
0: the hardest day on the camino yeah on what can be a two to three month walk yeah did on the first day
1: with no preparation that is and, and not that's easing just, into it i mean that's that's beyond just being that's 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 just dumb
0: yeah and it's a good way to not walk very long because it's really easy way to get injured
1: and i'm non-walking proof of that
0: yes yes you are (laughs) so to round out the practical tips that we've been going through which may sound obvious but more often than not you may forget as we have so heed our warning
1: eat regularly
0: eat regularly You know, that's one of the things I love about trekking is that it's really taught me how my body works around energy management, listening to my body. And that should be another tip. So let's throw that in here too. Listen to your body. Yeah. Like really listen to it. And if you don't try to do things your body's telling you you can't do because if you're doing it for days and days, you are going to get injured. And everything is about not getting injured when you're doing long distance walking. Yeah. So listen to your body. And that's one of the things trekking teaches you. And part of that is paying attention to when your body needs energy. We see so many people on this walk, for example. Yeah. People start the morning with a traditional French breakfast, which is crazy to me. It's a baguette. And if that's not enough bread for you in the morning, you also get a croissant. A baguette and a croissant. (laughs) And that's pretty much it. Maybe some some jam if you need a little bit more sugar. Yeah, there you go. You're not going to be able to walk up a mountain on a baguette and a croissant.
1: No, you're not.
0: And I don't think people realize this.
1: I think it's the way I started realizing it is I don't get hungry. I don't like have the growls. It's just I'm walking and then all of a sudden I'll feel really tired and sluggish and feel like I'm like, like pulling myself up and it's really getting harder. And that's usually a cue of, oh, I need more sugar. That's as simple as that. But I don't think that a lot of people really realize this. I also think because sugar tends to be sort of an enemy in our cultures, we don't realize that this is actually what we need to keep on walking. So I'm not talking like candies or, you know, I'm not, I'm not talking like fast sugar like that processed. I think it's more like dried fruits, a couple of nuts, If you're doing a longer break, just like maybe get some real like slow-burning carbs in there. It's really about knowing what is the fuel for our body. I heard someone say that uh, a good snack on the road was sardines. I don't I don't know if that's really a good snack. It's protein, and I don't I don't really know if it's as it doesn't kick you off as fast as as like dried fruits. Well, the
0: benefit with meat and cheese. In walking is that it's calorie dense yes and so you have a lot of energy in a pretty small package so i do think there's value in that if if you eat those things my general suggestions here would be make sure you get some slow carbs in the morning oats are a great way to start and then make sure you're giving yourselves a lot of simple carbs throughout the day to easily accessible energy because you're going to need it and like you said otherwise you crash and that's not a very enjoyable experience and going to take a while to recover from that so eating regularly Mm -hmm. and especially when you see that big peak you're about to climb chow down on a few dried fruits make sure you have some energy and then at the end of the day you know have something protein rich have something again with uh slower burning carbs give your body some energy to recover and get ready for the next day Mm.
1: yeah something i didn't realize as well as well you you had mentioned that on our first few tracks of like what you eat the night before impacts your day after. For some reason, I had always thought I had this assumption that, well, no, I've slept, so it resets. You know, like you you used to say, "Oh, I'm really hungry because I'm I'm hungry this morning because I didn't eat enough last night," and I was. What? <laughs> How does that even play into it? I didn't realize that it did. How crazy is that that I didn't realize that it did?
0: I think we become pretty alienated from what our bodies actually need because we just follow this script of breakfast, lunch, dinner. Yeah,
1: yeah. And
0: it's just we're not really connected to what we're doing and why. And yeah. when you're trekking, you need energy and when you don't have it, it becomes very obvious and you use it very quickly so you start to see these cycles and you start to see what happens when you give yourself energy when you need it and all of a sudden the world is colorful again and and looks decent and what happens when you don't and you feel like you're carrying a thousand pounds like sisyphus up (laughs) up the hill so now we're going to move into a few more like the cultural ones i think Mm -hmm. we just got two here the first one is uh when you can live like the locals do One, because it's usually easier to do than bringing your own stuff in. Two, because it's less impact. One of the things I can't stand when I'm in Nepal, for example, is, and you see it if you walk long enough, is like the people that come in expecting apple pie and Coca-Cola. Yeah. And it's like, no, yeah, they bring it in because if that's what people are going to pay for, the Nepalese don't have a lot of money. They're going to do whatever they can to make a buck. I, and you can't blame them for that. But you're bringing all these things that are not natural to the place. And for example, in Nepal, they have no way to recycle in the mountains. So all this stuff becomes mountains of trash right behind your nice little shop with apple pie and the Coca-Cola. Yeah. And I wish we could uh, bring a little bit more awareness to this and just try to avoid importing things that don't belong there.
1: Yeah, plus, I mean, we saw them on our way down. There's no roads to go up to Namche, which is the starting point of the Everest treks. The people, they had to carry those Coca-Cola in glass bottles up the mountain, like six 600 meters up. And it's it's kind of terrible to see the way that they have to carry it and how much they have to carry because you're not just going to carry a case up. You carry like 15 cases up. Yeah.
0: And the Nepalis are not drinking all that Coca-Cola.
1: No. But there's another reason why it's, it's good to live like a local. It's, it's, and I'm thinking especially in Nepal. There's a reason why they eat the way they do. Sherpas, they go up and down mountains all day. And they live off dalbat, which is rice and some vegetables, often potatoes and greens. And red lentils or lentils. Sometimes they will have uh, some, some dried cheese and they will also have tea with a little bit of butter in it. From a calorie point of view and from a nutritional point of view, this makes a lot of sense. This is so easy to digest when you're going up and down mountains. It will sustain you for a long period of time and it's fast energy. And the cheese and the butter will also help, like, bring in some fats that can, like, protect you from the cold and stuff. But it's making a lot of sense. And there's a reason why locals eat the way they do in the mountains.
0: That's very true. I think another reason is because we don't have a monopoly on, you know, useful customs or useful useful practices. And when you go into a different culture, it can be very educational to take on another culture's practices for a little while and experience it and see what works and what doesn't and compare it to what you do because so many of the things we do are just ingrained. They're just legacies. We don't even realize we do them. They're just assumed because our parents did them or our culture does them and we don't question them. And sometimes you go into a different culture. If you pick up the local customs, you realize like, oh, why do I do that? That makes no sense. Mm. And you can kind of pick and choose and start to create different habits based on the other cultures you've experienced and then all of a sudden you have you know things that are more suited Mm -hmm. and more practical to your life I mean there's things we still do that we picked up in Asia for example we're sitting on the ground when we have this conversation we spend most of our time like when we eat and stuff we sit on the ground we realize when we were in Asia that most of the time we prefer that yeah and so that's the normal way we do things we, you've also taken a lot of the food out of Asia, and it's still food we eat. We have our versions of Dalbat quite a bit. Just the other night, we had rice, lentils, and greens.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. One of the ways to live like a local is to actually talk to the locals, and just in general, talk to people when you're hiking. Whether locals or or hikers or trekkers alongside you, just talk to people.
0: Yeah, there's a lot of interesting people. I mean, for example... One of the things I always loved about traveling to remote, strange places that are off the map is the people I'd meet there because they also did that. You instantly have something in common. I mean, I tend to think I'm a slightly interesting person. When you start going to places that are off the map and kind of off the beaten path, the other people there are interesting just because they're there. Mm. Why is anyone else here? (laughs) And you're one of those people too. So immediately there's interesting people around because for some reason they are also in this godforsaken place that's interesting but then also usually people walking and doing these kind of things have interesting stories whether it be the locals who live there and spend all the time in that that area or people walking through there there's all sorts of interesting things that you can learn perspectives and the other thing is that because you're walking and because you're doing this a lot, when we walk, when we, when we go to these places and do these walks, we are stepping outside of our social roles, out of our social norms. We, we can kind of be, we have a freedom to be in a way that a lot of times we can be constricted in society. And a lot of interesting conversations will come up. People are often at transitions in their lives. You can learn a lot about not just like the local customs, but like Local conditions, by talking to other people that have been there or coming back. There's a lot to learn, and a lot of things can actually be avoided, or you can enhance your trip quite a bit just by kind of asking around at the local watering hole and seeing what comes up. It can lead you in all sorts of interesting places.
1: Yeah, when we were in Yosemite, we only figured out to avoid a certain part of the trek that was rampant with mosquitoes because we talked to a couple of people who told us that the night before they had to stop walking at five in the afternoon and set up camp and eat in their tent because there are so many mosquitoes outside. We were going to go there the exact same day. So we learned from them not to do that. Another thing that pops to mind is in Nepal, I got to see a side of the culture that I didn't even know could exist where people had no sense of time. We would ask the villagers how far was the next town, and one guy would say four hours. Another person would say nine. Someone else would say three. Another person would say you'd get there. You'll get there before nightfall, and none of that was true. <laughs> it, that that was really interesting to see. They are so much faster than us. They don't think about. They don't think in terms of time. They don't even. I remember one village that we went through that was like on the side of a mountain like super steep we stopped and I was asking them how long till the next point it was just a bunch of women like gathering and preparing rice and I remember I did the as I thought international sign tapping my wrist to share like give me a sense of time and they were looking at me like and looking at their wrists and just really not understanding what I was asking them. <laughs> and that was, that was wonderful, because I never it's like we, we, we tend to rely so much on our smartphones and on the ability to look for anything ourselves that we, we miss out a lot on the, the opportunity to connect if we do that. So recommend talking.: It's to also fun.
0: And that story is a great example. It it can be so fascinating just to realize the differences between how you live and how someone else lives. So something so simple as a watch Mm -hmm. that, that they don't have. Also, when we're walking with people and, you know, as we mentioned, a lot of times people go on these walks at pivotal times in their lives or to reflect. And you're both there. And a lot of times you're both going the same direction. And you're having a very shared experience just by the nature of what you're doing. And you have instant rapport. You you can build deep relationships and penetrate to like very deep places with somebody very fast in a way that you really cannot do in your normal everyday life. And that's kind of a jewel. And a lot of times I've had a lot of great friendships that have lasted the course of a trek and I haven't talked to them ever again. But they were really powerful at the time and a lot of times they had a huge influence on me. And this is something really special, I think, about these kind of walks is all you have to do sometimes is make eye contact and smile mm. or, or say hi or ask a stupid question. And you can end up in a two-hour conversation about some of the most meaningful you know, experiences of your life.
1: Mm.
0: And uh, I love that about walking. One last thing I'm going to say for the men here is uh, talk to people to ask for directions.
1: <laughs> On the more philosophical side, give yourself time. That is immensely important. As we said before, ease into the walk. Take your time. Listen to your body. Make sure that you're not following a a, a preconceived idea of how many miles you should do that day. Or you'll end up like Alistair in the urgent care in Scotland.
0: Yeah, or trying to find your way off the side of a cliff before the sun goes down. Exactly. (laughs) I I think... You know, these walks are spiritual journeys. So also it's important to have transitional points on the, you you need to cap these walks off with a transition. And maybe it doesn't have to be tons of time, but treat them as important experiences. So take a little bit of time to get Mm -hmm. in the mountains. You don't want to go straight from the city to the mountains and start walking. I mean, that can be a bit of a brutal transition. On the other side, same thing. When you finish walking, it's good to give yourself a little bit of rest, give yourself a buffer zone before you start having to do things. And doing that really increases the quality of the walk. Something that took me, believe it or not, quite a bit of time to like, really realize, and I've had to realize it over and over, is that I don't go to, to the mountains to do 100 miles or to bag 10 peaks. I go to the mountains to be in the mountains. It's so easy to forget why I'm there and get caught up in the numbers to or my position on a map how many how many meters have I done in altitude how many miles have I have I covered it's so easy to get lost in that and then there's some point where I'm suffering because of my own stupidity and just realizing what are you doing the reason you're out here is to be in the mountains there's nowhere to go mm-hmm. this is pointless the whole thing is absurdly pointless it's just to be out here and experience this you don't need you don't need to compete with yourself
1: and if you want to pause and rewind just a couple of like 30 seconds and re-listen to what Alistair just said think about it as a metaphor for life and you will see that it's actually mind-blowing because the same thing with life and with the mountains and with the hikes let's walk and enjoy the view
0: that's very metaphysical of you
1: there is nowhere to run to. It's really hard to remember at times in the mountains and in life. But I think it's something, as you said, that you have to realize over and over and over again. That's fine, too.
0: This is why I love walks, because they're small journeys and life is just a bigger journey. Mm. So there's so many lessons that you learn on walks that you can then kind of apply mm. to, to life as a journey on the whole, don't compete with yourself. Don't compete with others either. I think that's another thing that's, that's tough, especially in the beginning. I think you struggled with it a little bit on this last walk because it's easy, you know, to pass people and then you get a little boost to your ego. And then, you know, you're struggling a little later, that person passes you and that's a tick to the ego. And you're like, oh man, I am not as good. You know, like you just have, you have these like silent races with people, you know? And it's like, well, Uh, As we just said, this whole thing's pointless. You're here (laughs) to be in the mountains. Why the hell are you comparing yourself with what someone else is doing who doesn't even know they're competing with you? Yeah. You will be surprised how often that happens.
1: Yeah. (laughs) I found myself getting caught in that this time around, especially because on that first day, I knew we had to kind of race to get to the place to get a bed before everyone else. So... Yeah, that, that's kind of what happened. I think it was easier to get caught up in that. It's not the same as when we were in Yosemite and we know we can camp anywhere and oh just, i still do it there because i then still do it there too then it's, but then it's
0: just like you know you're like oh yeah i'm better than you or i'm more in shape than you or i'm harder core than you you yeah. know like, or a,
1: then i've done x amount of miles whatever you your particular
0: up, narrative yeah, yeah, is yeah. you can you could say oh i look better than you out in the wild
1: you <laughs> know like whatever it is
0: maybe that's yours yeah everyone's got or
1: or if you're able to stop early enough in the day and you see other people still uh, going you're like i'm wiser, oh, I'm, wiser. Yeah. I'm i've stopped young
0: saps <laughs> you're gonna get injured (laughs) that's a sneaky one you know that's a very sneaky one
1: that is a sneaky one that is a sneaky one
0: (laughs) (laughs) again a metaphor for life (laughs) 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 all right so let's cap off this long rambling walk through walking with one last one Mm -hmm. well let's get into ethics here
1: oh that's good Yeah. yeah
0: leave no trace in one way this is not possible. When you go somewhere, you leave an influence and an impact on it. And I think as travelers, as some level, we just have to accept that. We're going to influence the places we go. The culture is not going to be the same if we go there. It's mm-hmm. kind of that, like, observer problem where, like, I don't know if this is a great core, but, you know, in physics, there's this whole thing that something's not the same if it's observed.
1: Oh, yes, yes.
0: Well... That's true of cultures and of environments. If you go there, your footsteps are there. I mean, and if enough people do, that can dramatically change things. But we do want to respect the environments we go in. And if we're going to leave things, the only things we, sh- we should probably be leaving are our footsteps, our ideas, Which
1: conversations,
0: isn't. experiences we have, but definitely, definitely not trash. Mm. And at the same, it's not just leave no trace. And there's another way of thinking about it, It's like, don't take things either. Yeah, leave them there for the next person to enjoy.
1: And one thing that that we also try to do when we're together on walks, and I know I do it by myself too, is uh, if I see a piece of trash, I'll pick it up. If I see two and I'm able to carry it, I'll pick it up. It's it's not just leaving no trace, it's uh, leaving the place better than you found it. As much as possible, knowing that that's not always the only option
0: there's a challenge with this whole picking like if i see a piece of trash picking it up is that like okay where's the line because then all of a sudden it's like i don't want to be picking up trash my whole walk mm-hmm. right but uh, so an easy rule i have when i go walking anytime i go walking whether it's for an hour or for days one piece of trash a day one piece of trash a day that's my rule if i do that then i've left the place slightly better than mm-hmm. i found it And I feel good about that, that improves the quality. And I don't feel obligated to pick up every piece. That's one thing that I'd really, I I wish that was more the mentality of walkers everywhere. Because if you think about how many people go on walks all the time, if we all had that mentality of just just one piece today, just take one piece, it would make a massive difference.
1: So we're coming to the end of this episode.
0: Sadly. (laughs) I wish it would go on forever. I don't think our listeners do, though, so... Let's get on.
1: Let's get on, yes, yes. Uh, We had promised you in the beginning of this episode that we would talk a little bit more about this retreat um, and what is going to happen. Before we do that, just... I don't know if we announced it. I don't think we did. We actually officially founded our travel retreats company. It's called Ripple Out Retreats. And you can find us at rippleoutretreats.com. So we're doing the Yosemite retreat this July. We actually have... A pretty incredible thing, if you're interested, there's only two spots left. We were sold out, but a couple of people had to back down because of health reasons. So you might still be able to snatch that spot if you were thinking about it. Now's your time. Just check with us. By the time this episode comes out, I don't know if that will still be the case, but do check with us through the website or through our email, host at faroutpodcast.com. And maybe to talk a little bit about the France retreat, Alistair, you can jump in and share your vision on it.
0: Yeah. So the second retreat we're doing in France and Spain will be in the fall. Uh, It's going to be, I think it's September 6th to the 15th. You can double check. We have more information about this retreat at rippleoutretreats.com. And it's going to center around walking again. But unlike our Yosemite trip, it's going to be a very different style of walking. So that's more outdoor wilderness backpacking. This is going to be a pilgrimage. It's going to be a more social event. It's going to be more social. But we're still going to be walking through the mountains. That was important to us. We wanted to walk through the Pyrenees. And we're going to do an exploration over these 10 days of story. So the kind of evolving vision of this travel retreat company is that travel takes us out of our day-to-day patterns and 10 days is a good amount of time to really have an experience. And one of the things that's really important to us with these retreats and why we call it Ripple Out Retreats is that travel and walking and these kind of intense experiences that often happen when we take some time out of our lives and we go do something a little crazy with a bunch of people we don't know can spark insights and it can spark kind of meaningful conversations and experiences that that can really leave a mark. And so that's why we've called it Ripple Out. It's the idea that maybe one pebble that's thrown in the pond can ripple out and that these small changes that can occur over 10 days on a travel retreat, because let's be real, that's not a lot of time, but that a small shift there can ripple out and change things in all aspects of our life. And I've seen it happen. I've seen it happen where, I've ha- where conversations, experiences that I've had on some sort of journey have shifted in a major way, parts of my life. That's kind of our, our mission or the, the kind of operating idea behind these retreats is, can we plant a seed of change that will manifest when you return and that will ripple out to other people, to your community, society, all this. So our idea with this France-Spain retreat is to take you through one of the beautiful areas of Western Europe, through the countryside, through the Pyrenees Mountains, through ancient medieval villages, through very historical cultured cities. And as we do this, to explore stories, our stories, other people's stories, the stories we tell ourselves. If you've listened to the Yosemite retreat, part of these projects are also to bring in some mindfulness practices and things that have influenced us and uh, the other trip leaders that we're leading these trips with. So on this one, and this is why we're gonna start by exploring kind of some of our origins with the uh, prehistoric caves. And then we're gonna walk through kind of time in a way on this ancient pilgrimage and end up in the city of Pamplona. And all the way through, we are going to be having a kind of ongoing dialogue and different experiences around this idea of story. So one of the really cool parts of this walk on the Camino that we're cooking up is entering Pamplona, walking through the old city walls into the alleyways where the Running of the Bulls happens and, like, you know, where modern spanish culture is kind of thriving people drinking and and you if you walk long enough you'll end in this pretty classic european square very beautiful very big and there's lots of benches and it's a public square it's it's, it's got gorgeous buildings lining it on all sides and the day we arrived there there was uh, some accordion music and uh so we recorded a little bit and uh we'll leave you with the sounds of Pamplona.
1: Thank you for listening. Thank you very much. If you're interested in the retreats that we talked about, we will remind you that the place you can look for them is rippleoutretreats.com.
0: And we'll add a link in the show notes, which is at thefaroutpodcast.com.
1: If you have enjoyed this episode, please share it with someone who might enjoy it as well. That would be really cool to expand the conversation to other horizons.
0: Yeah, and if you haven't already, think about leaving us a review. It really helps us grow.
1: And then you get a shout out on the show.
0: Yeah, and you get the pleasure and satisfaction of knowing that you made our day here in the caravan.
1: (laughs) Yeah. All right, toodles? Toodles.